Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Femi, and I'll be reading our scripture passages for this morning. I think there are pew Bibles back, so that's great, right? Um, the two passages of scripture I'll be reading this morning are from Exodus chapter 20, um, the Ten Commandments. I'll be reading from verse 2 to verse 11. And then in Matthew, um, we'll be reading the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5. So um, you can find this on page 108 of the Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 20, starting from uh, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then from Matthew chapter five, it's on page 1473. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. Hey, everyone. So, um, uh, if you uh, if you're sitting by someone who's like in their 80s, uh, this you should be really glad they're here at church because um, I heard from the public health department the reason one of the reasons why I can preach without a mask on, which some of you would really hate if I was, some of you wouldn't care. Um, is because there's a clause that said if there are those hard of hearing in a place, 
where mass communication will make it difficult for them. You cannot wear a mask, especially if it's otherwise epidemiologically safe. So I actually checked with the health department in email. They sent back, they're like, you're not in violation. So if you're all, if you're sitting there and you're nervous, you're like, Nick, aren't you supposed to? No, the health department explicitly sent me a written document that I don't have to do so, okay? Okay. Um, this, um, every year or so, uh, people who are supposed to know something about these things say that churches are supposed to do a series that talks about like what you are as a church. What makes your church different? What makes your church special? Um, which I hate the whole idea of that um, with a burning hot passion. Um, so I'm going to do it. Um, <laughs> it's just supposed to. No, um, I, don't, I don't really think uh, the goal is ever to be different than other churches. I think that that's a terrible thing. Um, if you ever hear me say something like that, like the reason you should come to High Point Church is because we're better than those other churches. Um, I mean, it'd be great if you waited until after the service to slap me, but I deserve to be slapped. Um, that's not, we're always um, contrasting ourselves over against worldliness, um, over against the flesh, over against sin, and um, seeking to comport ourselves with what God is like, what he believes, what he has called us to be, right? And so, um, so this series, um, Unbrandable is going to be focused on what God is like and how we are meant to relate to him, specifically in a way that is not like this world would like to relate to God. And in so doing, I'm hoping that you're going to take from it a certain tenor and understanding about like what we're trying to be as a church together, because um, I don't think that what we're supposed to be as a church is this like little branded, like sexy little thing. We're like other churches, except in this one way, we're super awesome. And so if you want a church that's Jesus and this super awesome thing, you should come to our church. I think it's a terrible way to do church because what happens is you subselect by that thing, and so people aren't as different from each other as they should be, and so you don't really learn how to love each other because everybody's the same. Some of the things I hate about COVID is that people have sorted based on their politics because what you think about this disease correlates like exactly with your political views and very little with your epidemiological state. Um, and so what's happened is people have actually sorted into different churches based on what they think about how we should respond to this disease, which is really an expression of their politics. So we've sorted politically so we don't have to love each other across political lines. Isn't that fun? Is it, that's one of the reasons why I've tried to like not please any of you in what we do as a church because I don't want our church to sort that way because I want lots of different kinds of people here so that the person in the pew next to you literally annoys the heck out of you and that you have to learn how to love them. Right? I don't want to be Jesus and. I want to be Jesus, and Jesus is himself complicated enough, full enough, complete enough, that if we just pursued Jesus more and more, like more, with more depth, with more substance, with more completeness, with more, more wholeheartedness, with more abandon, and with all of the insights that different um, people with different experiences and different temperaments have, sometimes rooted in their personal experiences of different differences, that'll really help enrich us. Does that make sense? Because some people will say, worship isn't exuberant enough. We should be more passionate. And they're right. And then the other person will say, worship isn't theological enough. We should be more theological. And they're right. And some people will be like, we just need better poetry. We need some excellence in how we produce things artistically. And they're right. And other people, you know what I mean? And some people say the sermon should be shorter because we should have like clarity. And they're right. And those people, the sermon should be longer because like we need to talk more about the ways of God in a world in which we get, we're absorbing worldliness the rest of the week. And they're right. And we got to like just try to sort that out because we actually follow a God that is not mainly focused 
on being so simple that we can come up with little sayings that make super clear exactly what he is and he's just that little thing and then we can manipulate that little thing to whatever we want it to be. Does that make sense? Okay, I should start the sermon. All right, so I've used this concept of God being unbrandable. Not because branding is a bad thing. I remember when I was in seminary, I was living in a home with the CEO of a small corporation in Chicago. And I made the mistake of saying that marketing was a bad thing because it tried to convince people to buy things they didn't need, right? I must have just seen Fight Club or something. And he was like, actually, Nick, marketing is about connecting people's real desires with things that people produce. And people's, people don't always know that things exist that they do need and want. And so marketing connects those two things. That's what sales is about. That's what marketing is about. I was like, okay, I stand corrected, right? Like so branding and more broadly marketing is actually a really helpful economic endeavor. Wouldn't it be terrible if people made all kinds of amazing things and people wanted all kinds of amazing things and the two never got connected? That'd be bad, right? In a sense, what, what branding is is, uh, is, a, is the good work of— trying to put in simple terms a promise that a producer is making to a receiver or consumer that is like, in very simple terms, this is what we do, this is what we are, this is the promise we're making to you, and that it's connected to the tastes of the consumer's mind. So when I, when I tell you what my company is going to do for you, I'm thinking about what you want, how you feel, what you think, so that my brand is intuitive to you. Like you see my little logo, you hear my little statement, and you're like, oh, I really like that. I want to buy that. Does that make sense? Now, Branding is really good when something can be clarified and adorned by being simplified without being ruined. So if you have something that you can simplify it without ruining it, it brands well. Does that make sense? Or if um, consumers intuitively understand um, what the producer is trying to say because they share assumptions, right? If you know what a good athletic sneaker is, and I know what a good athletic sneaker is, and I know the image you want to portray, and I want to portray that same image, and I tell you that with my little pictures and my little sayings, and you're like, ooh, I really like that. Because we share things. Like, I, I've looked at some of the marketing stuff. Uh, you know, like when, when people open Chinese restaurants in America, and it's like happy food walk, and you're like, happy food. But they're, but they're basically saying, they're trying to connect with you. And they're trying to market. They're trying to say, listen, this is happy food, man. You eat this food and you're going to be happy and you're like, this doesn't really work in English, but like they're trying to be like, hey, you would really like this. It's happy food walk, right? I've been to India a few times and, and there's stuff that they've tried to market in English and it's for Indians and it does not connect with me at all. It's in my heart language, but I read the advertisement and I'm like, I don't want that at all. Um, I was in a, an Asian grocery store recently because my the daughter Rachel and I love to go to Asian grocery stores. And there was, we, especially to go through some of the drink aisle, and there was the, uh, the black fungus drink. And I was like, Rachel, we have to try this, right? Because this sounds disgusting, right? But like in the drink aisle in Asian grocery stores, there's a stronger emphasis and ethic of health foods. And like stuff that you maybe wouldn't eat, but it's actually kind of good for you, and you, maybe you would want to eat it, right? And so, like, I get this, like, black fungus drink, and it is, like, it has the viscosity of, like, 10W90. Like, it's, like, lower unit grease. You know what I mean? I'm drinking stuff, and it has no flavor whatsoever. There's no—it's just, like, a goop. And I was like, all right. This is making me more energetic and smarter, I'm sure, you know? Like, but, but like, it didn't—it didn't really connect with me, but, like, it, it connects with people. That's why they sell it right? So here's the, here's the issue. Marketing, in the sense of branding in particular, really works when it can be simplified and it can be in tuned with your tastes, right? You look at some of these things, and you're like, I know what they do. 
I know what they're trying to do for me. I know the promise that they're making, and I kind of like it, right? Now, here's the problem. Neither of these two things are true about God. In fact, with God, literally the opposite of those two things are true. And so, the, just, to, just to start out with in series, one of the things that we need to like imbibe as a people, and this has been true, God has been trying to tell us this for 3,000 years, right? God is not a brand. Your attempts to simplify him will never work. He does not simplify. Not in that way. Not in that kind of way. And he is not in line with your tastes. Because we've been affected by the fall, and because we are affected by what the Bible calls indwelling sin or the flesh, our tastes and our desires are messed up. They're out of line. They're, disp- they're out of proportion. And they're not connected with reality in the way that they should be. And so our, our tastes are worldly and our desires are fleshly. And because of that, God can't brand himself to what we want. God's not a brand. He's never going to be one. And that fact is incredibly good news. It's the best news you've ever heard. Um, because you think, we think we want a God we can brand. We think we want a God that we can like simplify and like understand well and like make little sayings about. And if God was like that, um, we would grow worse and worse. We would treat each other worse and worse. We would fall more and more away from the image of God that he's given us. The flesh would have full reign because that God couldn't connect with us. It couldn't, that God couldn't reform us. And that good God could never capture our imagination or our love. There's no logo that I love. And there's no brand that I'm ready to die for. Now, the reason God is not a brand is that he intentionally defies reduction and simplification, right? Instead, instead of him simplifying himself, he demands that you be expanded. That's his demand. He's like, I'm not going to simplify myself. You're going to grow. You're going to become more complexified. You're going to become less simplistic. And in so, in so doing, you're going to get wrecked. You're going to become less selfish. You're going to grow in this thing called humility. And ultimately, if you stick with it, you're going to develop this thing called wisdom, self-control, which ultimately flowers in godliness and makes you capable of this thing called love. I'm not simplifying. You're complexifying. I'm not going to reduce myself. You're going to expand yourself. Because sin simplifies, reduces, and makes us less. Right? And the second thing is that God confounds worldly tastes and fleshly desires so that instead he can purify and heal them. His, his goal is—it's not like God doesn't care about your tastes. It's not like he wants to make sure that nothing pleasurable happens to you. He wants to, he wants to um, purify your tastes so that he can give you graciously in accordance with healed, purified tastes so that your life and eternity can be filled with many pleasures. Right? And in order to do that, in order for—because pleasure does function partly based on desire. And desire, because of fleshliness and indwelling sin in the fall, is really twisted in us. And so God has to heal our desires so that our emotions, our desires can flow freely toward the good, and so that we can live lives filled with passion and filled with enjoyment. An enjoyment that enriches other people rather than, uh, like, vampirically devours them and sucks the life out of them. Now, um, <clears throat> therefore, there's two um, decisive attributes I want to talk about this morning. The first is, is that God defies reduction and simplification. And the second is, is that God confounds worldly tastes and fleshly desires. And I want to say that both of these are unspeakably good. Okay? 
So the first is God defies reduction and simplification. We all want mental shortcuts. We all want heuristics. We all want little sayings that we can say when people talk to us, when just God is love, and we just want them to immediately know what that brand means, you know, and that's all there is to say, right? And um, so um, when companies try to define themselves for us, right, they focus on something that's narrow and simple in scope, right? Like, boom, here's what it is. So like if you were trying to work through some of this stuff, um, so, and, and it's not like I'm, I'm not saying that like things that are a little bit complex can't be branded. In, in some sense, you can brand anything. The problem is, is that as things grow more complex and diversified and tensioned and, and these sorts of things, the brands kind of mean less as you get going. They don't really say enough. Like, like the Marines, always faithful. It doesn't even say what they do. You're supposed to already know. You're like, are these people who like water? Are these like sailors? And they always sail? right? You have to already know they're a military, right? Also with the church, like you can easily brand the church. The the church is here to make disciples. You can brand our commission. But is that, like, does that tell you what the church is? Does that tell you what we are? Does that tell you, like, there's real limitations, even though it can be done. Now, you can, there's a lot of things that, like, because they're focused in what they do, they're just doing one thing, they're fairly easy to brand. Like, if you try to brand a restaurant, you're going to say something like, you're going to eat here, it's going to be yummy, plus it's going to be chic, it's going to be cheap, it's going to be cool, it's going to be with unfinished ceilings so that you feel rad. I mean, like, whatever. Like, it's going to be, like, it's going to be food, and it's going to be something else, right? I mean, right? Or if you're doing, like, a sports team, it's like, we're going to beat the other guy at this sport, plus blank, and you'll be entertained and diverted. It's like some version of that, usually with two or three colors, right? Or like an electronics company, like, uh, like you're going to be able to, like, get stuff poured from the internet into your face, and it's going to happen really fast, and people are going to think that you have money because you bought that thing, right? Or like a streaming service. You'll be entertained right this second with shows you've watched before. Okay, and so, but the, the more, the deeper things are, the more complex they are, the more layered they are, the more difficult they are to brand. Like if I said, okay, brand the country, right? That's a little harder, right? If you're really trying to brand it for like everybody, Right? Or, or just the Midwest. Like, what if we just say, like, the five, like, sort of, like, mid-Atlantic upper states, right? It's just, and, like, to make it easier, just throw Michigan out. You know what I mean? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Michigan is great. Michigan is great. There's great fishing up there. Okay. Um, what would you, I mean, like, would you just be, like, uptight all year round? I mean, like, like it wouldn't get everything about us. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, or, like, all scientific knowledge. How would you brand that? Right? Like, you'd get something, but you'd lose a lot. Or something like a planet. Like, how would you blame? Like, you're going to go, like, we're, we're going to go to, like, the, the UN of galaxies, and it's your job to brand Earth. Not as dysfunctional as we look. I mean, something, something sexy like that. You know what I mean? It'd be great. <laughs> or, like, the whole, the uni, branding the universe, right? Then think about this. Even branding yourself. Like, I've had people say to me over the years, they're like, Nick, like, you do all this work, you write all these things. Like, if you, like, just focus a little bit more on, like, who you are and, like, what you're doing and, like, kind of brand yourself better, you could, like, sell books. You could do—I'm like, listen, I do not need more responsibility. I do not need more anything. But listen, I just hate that idea. Like, what am I going to narrow myself down to and just be like, well, I'm this little thing. Well, I'm not a little thing. I'm a pastor. I'm by definition a generalist. I'm trying to be holistically godly. Most of the things that are, like, my biggest strengths are also my biggest weaknesses. I don't really want to be branded on that thing. And, like, it's even like, well, you're the guy who tells it like it is. Yeah, and that's, like, the worst thing about me, too. I don't really want to be branded 
even with the things that maybe I could brand myself with. I don't want to brand myself. Now think about this. So how difficult do you think it would be to brand God? <laughs> It'd be harder than branding the universe. It's certainly harder than branding you, right? And yet, if you listen to the way we talk about God, or the way people talk about God, they tend to think that like little simplistic sentences explain God without remainder. Like, well, God wouldn't be against this thing I'm doing because God's loving. Meaning, universally accepting, meaning I can do whatever I want. And everything else God has said about himself and his self-revelation must therefore be false or irrelevant. Right? Or, God says a certain thing is a sin. You have done that certain sin. God must be really displeased with you because God hates sin. Right? That's also true. Also could be God's brand. God hates sin. Right? That's a little bit too narrow. Right? Because there's other things about God like his compassion for our weaknesses, his love of sinners, that he dies for his enemies. Right? One of the things that's also true is that there's some things— there's some complexities you can brand. Like, for example, like, I imagine that 3M is like a very complicated company that I could never run. But what they do for you is—Devin said this at lunch this week. He's like, they, you, we put films on flat surfaces. Like, that's a really big, complicated company. But you can like—but ultimately, you can narrow it down to what they do. And what they do is they put films on flat surfaces. That's it, man. Right? But there are some things that the kind of complexity makes it hard. Right? I mean, in this, in this series, we're going to go over six major attributes of God, of God's, the fundamentally part of God's character, how he reveals himself and how he interacts with us, that are just, they're not simple. They're not really brandable. Right? So for example, God's shouted glory. Right? God is incredibly glorious and magnificent. And he is the God who hides. He is the God who veils parts of his revelation. He is the God who holds back. He is the God who intentionally misleads the unwilling to believe. He is, he is the God who does not explicitly, just simply display his glory. Partly because he says if he did that, we would die. And partly because he interacts with human beings in this dynamic way that we don't completely understand, right? His holy love. God is incredibly loving. And some people are like, oh, that's so great. And I'm like, yes. In a 100% holy way, with a perfect relationship to all of the virtues in perfect proportion, in an utterly morally serious way, and in a fully impassioned, compassionate, heartfelt way, at the same time, perfectly in complete maturity. Right? That's hard. Because some of us want to be like, well, God is holy, and so he's just like all about the rules all the time. That misses a lot. And some people, well, if God is loving, then he must fall into all the assumptions I have about what I would want if somebody loved me. And that's also completely false. And if you try to understand God's love without understanding his holiness, you don't understand anything about God's love. And if you try to understand God's holiness without understanding his love, you don't understand the purpose for which or the way he reveals his holiness. Like, these things are dynamically related to the same thing with his power and his meekness. The same thing with the fact that he reveals himself in a written word, and yet he veils it in certain contexts. That he is the triumphant Lord who is giving of himself to crucifixion and death and to be mistreated by the worst people. Right? The God who does the most extraordinary things. He, he raises the dead and he heals the mentally ill and he heals the, the, the paralyzed and the blind. Right? And he lives a utterly ordinary life in which he doesn't have his own home, and he like eats mediocre food, and he walks through the dirty roads, and he loves people as his friends, and he lives like a fundamentally ordinary life 
while it's doing the most extraordinary things at the same time in some strange, wholesome, interesting way. And because God is complex in completeness and with things in tension with each other and perfectly balanced and in a way that's mysterious and utterly strange to us in some ways, in which what he reveals and doesn't is built with discretion. And most of what we learn about God, it is, we don't learn it entirely by just reading it conceptually. You don't understand most theological truths or truths about God until you explore them experientially, carrying with, with yourself the knowledge of the truth stated. You've read the proposition. You're carrying that with you, but what do you think discipleship is, right? Discipleship is leading on the basis of following a teacher. Does that make sense? So you're receiving teaching from the teacher, but in the process of obeying that teacher in the course of following the teacher, you really are formed in the doctrines and the truths themselves. And because the process of spiritual growth is experiential in that way, it can't just be dumped on you. You have to go through this strange, like, wandering, exploratory thing we call a life in order to learn and be developed in all these things. That's not brandable. That's not, that's not reducible. You can't put that on a shelf. It can't go through, in, like, an uh, assembly line. It, you, like, it doesn't work that way. There's some things that don't—you can't brand a tomato plant. It just has to grow, right? And the result is things that you can't produce— by mechanistic production. Things like substance, depth, wisdom, maturity. Right? Um, <clears throat> Nicole uh, talked about her, her dad worked for this country called— this country— <laughs> this company called BASF. When I, was a, when I was younger, there was this commercial for BASF that said, we don't make a lot of the products you buy. We make a lot of the products you buy better. Right? That's a great—isn't that a great brand? I have no idea what that means. It sounds like a bunch of people who do nothing. That's what it sounds like to me. It's like, we did it. Yeah, we, we changed the, the thing about that thing, probably, you know? <clears throat> if it was possible in, the, in God's divine mind to utterly simplify himself into a single brand, you would, and I would find that brand completely incomprehensible. Because we don't share his assumptions, and what he's simplifying is so profoundly complex, we wouldn't follow the simplification process. It'd be like the Marines, always faithful. Always faithful in what way? Doing what? Where? Well, if you don't already know, you don't know. I mean, for all that we know, God did brand himself when he says, I am, I am who I am. That's God's brand. <laughs> you know? Well, I don't know what that logo means. It looks good, though, you know? I, or like, you know how like when in cooking people do a reduction? I'm going to do a little bit of a reduction. I'm going to do a little, uh, little, uh, little, little broth reduction, right? Trying to do a reduction of God is like trying to do a reduction with steak. Like, it doesn't reduce. It just gets harder. You know what I mean? It is what it is already. It's perfectly ordered. You know, you can't reduce it. You can't cook it down. Does that make sense? And so, why am I going on about this? Because we, our, we, our minds, our hearts, our flesh desperately wants a God that we can do this to. And so you're, you might be like, Nick, at some point— Will you be speaking about the Bible? And the answer is yes. I have been, but if you, if you want a verse, um, when the first time God tells people about himself, after the world has become worldly, so it's after the fall, after cultures have fallen away from God, after humans have created human societies in which God is not the center, in which they are the center, and their assumptions are the center, and their beliefs are the center, right? what the Bible calls this world, or worldliness, or the God of this age, or the Bible has a lot of, of attitudes about a 
a non-God-centered mind and heart, right? C- both culturally and individually, is the Ten Commandments, right? He brings his people out of the worldly world of Egypt, and he's sending them into the world. So he's not taking them out of, into this, like, spiritual Shangri-La. They're not going back to the garden, and they're, they're not going forward into heaven. They're coming out of Egypt, and they're going into Canaan. So they're coming out of the world that they're not supposed to be like, and they're being sent to a world they're not supposed to be like. And so God is telling them what he's like and what they're going to be like if they belong to him. And he can't tell them absolutely everything about himself, but he says a couple of things very specifically to get them started. The first is, is that you can't have any other gods. There's one God. So it's not like the brands in your house. That's not how God functions. You can't brand him, meaning you can't make him work together with other stuff. He doesn't work with other stuff. Okay? He's not that kind of brand. God's not a brand. God's in everything. Does that make sense? Anything that stands, seeks to stand in an equal place with him, or to take that which belongs to him, has to be expunged. You shall have no other gods, right? Secondly is, you're not to make any graven image or idol, right? That is a representation of a god. Now think about this. He doesn't say you're not to worship idols, right? That's assumed. Because he says right after that, don't bow down to them and worship them. But he's like, you're not to make one. Does that make sense? You're not to make one. Now what does that mean? God didn't want them making any representations even of him. Do you understand? Like, they weren't supposed to, like, most people, when worshiping, that, would, that which would make them similar to other people's, that would even maybe make them distinct as if they had their own representation of God, their own carved image, their own form statue, their own physical picture that people could connect with and believe in, right? That would be really helpful. And God doesn't allow that. He sets up this whole system of worship in which he gives them commands of what everything is supposed to look like. And when it culminates in um, the Ark of the Covenant, the atonement plate, and the cherubim on the top of it, and you're like, okay, and then the God, and he's like, and now we're done. <laughs> this is not, he gets to the point where there would be like a God, and he's like, and now make nothing. And you're like, this is very strange. There's no other people in the world that behaves this way, right? Um, think about it this way. Um, when Moses is going up to get the Ten Commandments, he's on Mount Sinai for 40 days. They're like, where did this guy go? And like, I mean, the ancient world, man, like, he could have fallen and died. They don't even know if he's coming back, right? And they're like, well, okay, we need to get—so so he, they all take their gold, and they give it to the priest, Aaron, and they say, we want you to make a god for us, right? Because Moses, the person standing in for God, is gone. They need a god to move forward. So Aaron does. He takes all their gold, and he melts it down, and he makes a golden calf, right? A cow, look, a, a, a bullock, right? And it's really interesting, right? Because— um, What's wrong with that? Now, some people are like, because they think a cow is a god, right? Well, probably not, right? I mean, like, there is nowhere in the ancient world in which people seemed to literally worship cows, okay? However, cows, be- before horses were the common way people um, did farm work, um, cows were the thing that mostly multiplied your work. They, were a symboli- they, they symbolized stately power. Right? And so people would make a bull, and they would imagine that the God rode upon the bull, or the God was instantiated in the bull, or if the God came into the human, human existence, he would, like, he would like incarnate as a bull to show his strength, his virility. You know what I mean? Because bulls are also—they like fertility as well, if you've ever watched them. Um, and so—but here's the problem. The minute the Israelites put a bull under God as his brand— 
What happened? He was all that and nothing else. Right? So what did they do? It says that they celebrated their God of strength that would bring them victory, and they engaged in pagan revelries, which is Old Testament euphemism for orgies. Okay? Because the bull is also the God of fertility, right? And so this makes perfect sense. And so when God reveals himself in Ezekiel, remember, he, he doesn't even reveal himself. He reveals his cherubim, which are themselves so interpersonally complex that there are wheels within wheels with eyes everywhere and multiple sets of wings, but even the faces have four faces. The man, the bull, the lion, and the eagle. Because you can't even simplify a cherubim down, even in your mental comprehension, any more than that they bear the wisdom of man, the magnificence of the lion, the strength of the bull, and the comfort and caring and uplift of the eagle. And all four exist simultaneously in the person of the henchman of God, of the cherubim, not even God himself, of which everything is so interlayeredly complex that Ezekiel can't even make sense of it. He just knows he's overwhelmed by it, right? You see, there's no, there's no boil down that works for God, especially for us, because the minute you boil God down to something, we go, it's that and nothing else, and we start to twist it allowing ourselves to ignore all the rest of God's character, and therefore all of his wisdom, and therefore eschewing all of the maturity that's meant to grow in us, and we start using that one thing the way we want to use it. God will bring us victory. God will bring us fertility. Let's have orgies, and let's celebrate. And you're like, what the? Because what God actually gave the people instead of a golden calf was commandments. Which sounds weird. You're like, wait, aren't commandments— like unhelpful summaries? Well, not if you have 638 of them, maybe, right? But also, no. Like God recognizes that his infinite complexity has to be reduced in some way for us. And so God reduces it to reliable precepts into the human experience that we don't totally understand. That's why people like us who live after the Enlightenment hate doctrine. I think, I think about how, how people behave about doctrine. They're like, oh, like, I, like you, know, you know, deeds, not creeds, and like, I don't like I, all these doctrines, and like, I like to be spiritual, but I don't like to be religious with all those like definite statements and like ethical norms, right? And you're like, well, if God is infinitely complex, then what he would require of us morally might elude us. And so for him to directly tell us his conclusions about how we should behave would be a very kind thing for him to do. And for him to summarize that even more into like 10, out of which he will work 500, until he teaches us how to live by the law of love, would actually be an extremely helpful and meaningful thing for us to do that didn't reduce him, because you're not reducing God to any of these commandments. You're saying of all the things God would want, of all the things that he is, he tells you to do A. Don't have any other gods. Don't make a god for yourself. Don't use God's names vainly. Don't, don't act like the name of God is meaningless. Right? And so on. Do you see? And so what God does in these first commandments is like, you don't brand me. Don't brand me, dude. Right? Don't, don't think you can do that. Don't try that. The minute you do that, everything will go wrong. You have to leave me as the comprehensible, incomprehensible God. The God of holy love. The, God, the warrior, victor, who is meek, and will allow myself to be killed by my enemies. Like, if you simplify me, you'll never grow yourself, right? And see, the beauty of 
the beauty of the complexity of God in this is that there's two reasons why it's incredibly important, if you haven't gotten this clearly yet, that God is unsimplifiable. And the first is, is that this is the God that when you know him, he will, in, he will fill your heart with the realizations of his beauties, his truths, his goodness forever. He is the inexhaustible beauty. Right? And he is meant to be the object of our affections, the, the centerpiece of our existence. He is the hope of our eternity. And that person, in order to bring about infinite pleasure in us, cannot be some stupid little simplistic brand. He has to be the kind of person that can be not just good enough, but complex enough, beautiful enough, magnificent enough to fill us with wonder eternally. Right? You want God to be magnificent, and to be magnificent as God in his divinity, he is going to be dizzyingly complex. Right? And secondly is, sin makes us shallow, vaporous, simplistic, aphoristic, little people who say all kinds of nonsense, thinking we're saying something that's meaningful. We deal with problems by one thingism. We're just so sure everything in the world comes down to like one problem that we mildly understand, and we have no idea what really, you know, we, like we think all of poverty is because poor people are lazy, or all of poverty is because our school system isn't good, or all, like, we just have these like really simplistic ideas of everything that's happening around us, and now it tends to be like pop psychology ideas. We have all these little brain hacks, and we, 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 we've learned a little bit about some little thing about neurology that's probably not even true, and we're like, oh, that explains why people treat me this way, and why blah, blah, blah with my parents. You know, you're like, that's really shallow. The, the, the world just isn't like that. You have to grow up. And, and so what happens is as you have to interact with and grapple with the complex God of salvation and scripture and of your own creation— he will force you to be kind, become the kind of creature that is made in his image. Because here's the thing, you guys. The reason why the Sabbath command comes right after all that is because you can't misuse humans because humans are the image. You are the brand. The closest thing God has to a brand on earth at this moment is the believer, especially instantiated in the family, so there's the creative interdynamic between people, especially in the church. That is the closest thing he has to a brand, which is annoyingly complicated. I get it. But it's as simple as it can be. And God is trying to make us mature and complex and truthful. Okay, I need to go through this real quick. Second is, and a lot of this overlaps, is God confounds worldly and fleshly tastes. Like, he, it's not only that he's not simple, it's that, like, he can't connect with your tastes and my tastes, really. There's certain ways that he can. There's certain things that we love that are wrapped up in things that are wholesome and part of creation, but they're twisted, and they're inordinate, and they're like out of whack, and they're abusive. And he's not going to be like, give the people what they want, right? Like in marketing, you want to give the people—there was this movie a few years ago called Daddy Daycare with Eddie Murphy, right? And other people who are supposed to be funny. And um, he, like, he has this job where he's trying to sell the vegetable cereal, and he's competing against this other guy in the office who's selling the chocolate puffs cereal. And the guy who's selling the chocolate puffs, he's like, sales are through the roof! Sales are through the roof! And the guy's like, you're selling candy! Like, he's, and so he like ended up, ends up losing his job because he can't sell a vegetable cereal to kids. Because who could, right? And because you're not giving the people what they want. They want chocolate balls. 
with sugar caked in them so that when you drink the milk, you have like a, like a pre-diabetic shock. <laughs> right? I mean, we'll, we'll even eat cereals like that that hurt us, like Captain Crunch. It cuts your mouth every time, doesn't it? But you eat it, and you'll eat it, and you'll eat it, right? It's what you want. Right, Reuben? Yeah. Right? Now, you can see this is what Jesus does. Like in his, in his biggest sermon in the scriptures, it's three chapters of this. It's like, you're, I'm not what you think I'm like. I'm not what you want me to be. I'm not what you think I'm like. I don't do things the way you do them. A lot of it seems like completely the opposite. And he doesn't just say this to worldly people who, who are irreligious. He actually says this to people who are, who are claiming to be religious, who want to grow in godliness, who want to pursue God. He's like, even you who are a religious person who say that you believe in God and say that you want to follow God, the true dynamics of the heart of God may or may not be operative in your life at all. Right? And so he says that there's a blessedness to like a poverty or humility of spirit. There's even a blessedness that can be experienced in poverty itself. Like Jesus— um, it always annoys me when people say Jesus was homeless. <laughs> like he was—he wouldn't take his meds, you know what I mean? Like Jesus was homeless because he was a mendicant, because he chose not to attain or accumulate worldly things because of a lifestyle that he had chosen for the good of others. Not as a failure to accept responsibility himself or just function in his own life, right? And so he chose practical poverty so as to live in poverty of spirit, and to share that poverty of spirit clearly with others. That's not how we think. That's not how we think even realistically. That's not how we think in the church, right? And the same is true for mourning and sadness. We want to be happy all the time. Like we want to, like we want, can you, can you do a happy sermon? I want a happy sermon. I was listening to somebody recently who said they had found a church, and they said what they liked about it was that it wasn't super woke, like, like religion was all politics, but it also wasn't super happy all the time. Like, faith in God was all, all success all the time. He's like, it annoys me when I go to churches, and it's like, it's all happy in God, and happy about God, and happy about us. And he's like, people are dying. Like, we're, our lives are not the way they're meant to be. I'm really sad about these eight things in my life I wish would be different that I can't change. My life is it turning out the way— Like, I, I'm also very sad. I'm also hurt. I'm also really struggling. I'm like, are you ever talking about that? And Jesus literally says, listen, blessed are the people who are willing to cry. And like, let's not come out of their nose at church because they're really upset and they're showing it and they can accept the fact that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. That it's good and bad. That it's, it's, it's wholesome and broken. That it's beautiful and ugly. And that the last cry of the heart in the whole Bible in the book of Revelation is John saying, even so, come Lord Jesus. Meaning, come and put an end to how twisted and broken and split this world is. And all the way through all these things about God, He's constantly saying, look, I'm not the way you think. I'm not—even if you're religious, I'm often just—I'm just not the way you think, and you can't—you can't brand me, right? And so these next six weeks, we're going to, like, like, try to work through this. Um, I'm not, not through the Beatitudes, but through these, these major areas of God's character that in Scripture we tend to just want to choose. And it's because we want to choose a certain, like, brand of the thing, we don't understand it at all. And we end up going through our lives not understanding our God, who has— plainly showed himself how that he's glorious, but he's glorious in a particular kind of way. He's loving in a particular kind of way. 
He's powerful in a particular kind of way. He's self-revealing in a particular kind of way. And he's magnificent in a particular kind of way. And if you don't learn the particular kind of way it is, you won't like how he's doing it. You will judge him thinking that he's some kind of a fraud, and that will lead you to disbelieve in him as an act of personal piety because you think that believing in the truth has to be what God would want if there was a God. And because you can't conceive of the truth as God has actually revealed it because you won't let his complexity deal with your oversimplification of him, and you won't let him actually confound your tastes and your desires. You assume he must be wrong, and, and if there was a God, he would want me to believe the truth. Disbelieving in this God of Christianity is believing in the truth, therefore I disbelieve. That's what you will do. And you'll think it was an intellectual process. It was an emotional process. And God is, isn't going to play. He, God's not going to be like, oh, I don't want that to happen. Please, 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 please. I'll change everything about me so that you can understand me. That the way God shows himself is he does not do that. He will stick with you, but he will not cease to be himself to persuade you because he, does, he will not choose to degrade and defile himself to fit into our broken tastes and desires. If God fulfilled our tastes and desires, he would be a devil. Can we say that again? If God fulfilled our broken tastes and desires, he would be a devil. And he's not. And so he must defy us in this, in our desire for him to cater to our tastes. And he has to change our tastes by purifying them and and reorder our desires by healing them. And then he can give us what our hearts really desire. God has no brand. You can't brand God. He isn't a brand. That doesn't mean he hasn't gone out of his way to simplify his truth, to show it as clearly as possible, to, to show us the multifaceted magnificence of his own wisdom, right? Jesus is himself God's summary. And you might think that's really simple because Jesus was like some hippie who like believed in peace and was super loving and accepted everybody. That's not what Jesus was like at all. Or you might think that he was like for you owning six AR-15s and voting Republican and eating a lot of meat. And that wasn't him either. You know? Um, Jesus on one page will fulfill all your stereotypes of him and on the next page confound them if you'll actually read the Bible. And pay attention to what it actually says. On one page, it'll sound like if you own anything, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And on another page, Zacchaeus could give half of his enormous wealth to the poor, and Jesus says, this is the son of Abraham bound for heaven. And he like puts that all in your pipe and tells you to smoke. He's like, look, if you, if you will grapple with the complexity of these different things, of this multifaceted person, you will begin to grow in maturity and wisdom yourself. And if you refuse to, you'll either pick and choose and have a legalistic religion you made to attack others, or you'll say, this religion is just so contradictory. Jesus is like contradictory. This isn't real. Like somebody just made this up to control people. And you'll just pitch the whole thing and be irreligious. And God isn't going to rewrite the Bible to fit your tastes or make it simpler, like a little like note card. There's no executive summary. Like it's never going to happen. It is what it is. And that is the best news you've ever heard. That the God who is magnificently complex is 
complex in his knowledge of truth, so he understands every truth in its perfect proportion, not just in its facile, sophomoric, little, one-thingish utterance. He is magnificently good. He knows the prudent good to do in every complex situation, and he has the capacity to judge every action of humankind for eternal significance. And he is pursuing the good through the complicated means of his providence and working through us toward that good by his Spirit. And he can teach us to be good no matter how complicated the world gets. Listen, like we're fighting about mask stuff and like COVID, blah, 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 and who's getting sick and who's not. Listen, this isn't complicated, y'all. Okay? This is not like a complicated life, right? Like we're going to go home and have like most of us nine choices of what we would have for dinner. You're like, should we go out to eat or should we not go out to eat? You're rich, Okay? You're free, and you're rich, and you're fat, and you're happy. Okay, listen, if you can't be happy now, or if you can't work it out right now, we're in big trouble, okay? Because we got friends dying in Iran. We've got people getting their organs harvested. In like, we got, like, Christians, like, I was just listening to the thing by a, a North Korean girl who, like, she had to get sold into sex trafficking so that she could get into a place where she could then try to cross the Gobi Desert and die so that she could get arrested by Mongolian soldiers so that they would threaten to send her back to North Korea to be killed and murdered so that she could finally get asylum in the United States and go to Colombia to be told that she should burn down America and go back to North Korea. Okay, like, that was tough. And so, like, God also, like, wants to make something solid out of us. It's unbelievable, like, how weak we are. It's great. I mean, listen, it's great. Like, I, I like the air conditioning. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I like this train as long as this train is on the tracks. But when it capsizes, like, I still have my backpack and my shovel in my overhead compartment. You understand what I'm saying? Like, you gotta be—we we gotta be substantive. And also, like, otherwise what happens is we won't sacrifice any of these things we love—we love to love other people. You're going to burn these luxuries to ashes in a way, like not take advantage of them fully to love other people. And that'll never happen if we stay so simplistically worldly. And only a complex God can save you from that. Only a God that doesn't care about your tastes, but wants to transform and purify them can save you from that. Only a Jesus that's more complex than your simplistic answers can save you from that. Only a God who isn't going to reduce to Republican or Democrat can save you from that. Only, you understand what I'm saying? Like, it is such good news that Jesus cannot be branded. It is such good news that God cannot be branded. It's so good that there is no graven image, no idol, no aphorism that you can use to kill your enemy and justify yourself. There is nothing that's going to get you off the hook. There's no way out, and that is the best news in the universe. Because if there was, you would take it. And God's defying of us and his confounding of us is for our good so that we would see his magnificence and that we would be transformed into ever-increasing glory, the Bible says. That we would participate in the divine nature, it says in Second Peter. And that we would become the kind of mag magnificent creatures we, would meant to be, we were meant to be and such mag magnificent stewards and heirs of creation that we could love others and creation the way we were meant to. So over the next six weeks, we're going to focus on six characteristics of God that need to be seen, complexified, driven against our tastes. 
And that's the kind of church I want High Point to be. I want High Point to be the kind of church where you're always getting confronted, where you're always struggling with the picture of God that comes out of the scriptures, where you're never comfortable on the home base of your little ideology, where um, you have to face the idiosyncrasies of other people, whether good or bad, where Jesus is seen in his multifaceted glory, not in his denominational simplicity, so that we actually grow into godly, substantive, magnificent beings under the sovereign, beautiful, magnificent God that we worship wholeheartedly and we follow devotedly. And I have no other vision than that. I don't have a special carpet we're going to use to win Madison. I don't, I'm not going to start wearing tighter pants. I can't really grow much facial hair. I'm not going to have any more muscles, even if I work out every week to be fit pastor. I can't yell any louder. I'm not going to get any smarter. I, like, I'm still going to have a weird personality. Like, there's no, there's no shtick, okay? There's no brand. There's no thing. All there is, is the beautiful, dynamic, divine, spiritual environment of the people of God pursuing the complex and intimidating yet beautiful person of Christ. God, we pray that by your Spirit and in your life and love, we would be able to pursue you, to love you, to be expanded by you, to be changed and confronted by you. We pray that we would see you as one who is, um, has all the interworkings of a truly divine Father. Every sternness, every compassion, tenderness with wisdom, interworking in the person of who you are. We pray that you would help us to open up in the places where we have tried to simplify you, brand you, and put you in little aphorisms. Help us to see that these are graven images of idolatry that we have created so that we could have other gods beside you, so that we could use your name vainly, and so that we could abuse the image bearers around us. And help us to come to you recognizing your tender compassion, your loving forgiveness, and that those who— will live by mercy you pour out your mercy on. Help us to have faith, knowing that you died for our sins and were raised for our justification. Help us right now as we sing these songs to worship you. And as we recite this creed, to revel in the fact that doctrine is the closest thing we have to direct simplicity. In Jesus' name, amen.